Hello, and welcome to another episode of JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain at JG Ministries. Glad to have you. Be sure to follow this podcast, and you'll receive notifications every time there's a new podcast. We are studying the book of Luke and unpacking chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to that chapter, and we'll pick up with verse 14. Let's get into it. Now, last time we saw Jesus sending out the 12, and we were learning about the feeding of the 5,000. And so we'll now continue with this of the feeding of the 5,000. And then also we'll take a look at Peter's confession of who Christ is. Now, turning to our scriptures here, I just want to refresh our memories, beginning with verse 14. For there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of fifty. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Now the crowd was much greater than five thousand. Since the scripture says that there was 5,000 men, there would also have been women and children in addition to the 5,000. And notice that Jesus is to seat the 5,000 men plus the women and children in the groups of 50. Now, this would be for the easy distribution of the food, and it would also be easier to calculate about how many there were. And Luke briefly summarizes the miracle showing the orderliness or orderliness of the distribution. Then after giving thanks, Jesus thanks, which provides a lasting example for, for Christians, the adequacy of the food. And then he breaks the bread and kept on giving disciples. And when we are receiving our creature comforts, if you will, we too should look up to heaven as Christ did to teach us to do the same. We must acknowledge that we receive everything from God and that we owe him everything. We depend on God's blessings to make us for service for him to carry out his will. And Christ also taught by example. And then we have the disciples in turn distributing the bread that Jesus gave them and the fish and gave them to the people. And there was plenty of food for everyone. In fact, when the meal was over, there was more food left than there had been at the beginning of this. And the leftovers filled 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples. When Christ feeds, he fills up to whom he gives. He gives enough because there is plenty of him to be given for everyone. And this incident is filled with significance for disciples who are charged with evangelism of the world. The 5,000 represent lost humanity. They're starving for the bread of God. The disciples picture helpless Christians with seemingly limited resources, but unwilling to share what they have. And we have the Lord's command, you give them something to eat. It's simply a restatement 
of the Great Commission. The lesson is that if we give Jesus what we have, we can multiply it to feed the spiritually hungry, this multitude of the spiritually hungry, and in turn can result in the salvation of souls, who in turn will be worshipers of the Lamb of God throughout all of eternity. The world could be evangelized in this generation if Christians would surrender to Christ all that they are and all that they have. That is the enduring lesson of the feeding of the 5,000. Now we move into our section here. We have Peter's great confession. Let's go ahead, let's go ahead and read here. <clears throat> With verse 18, And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the prophets has risen again. He said to them, And answered and said, The Christ of God. Now Luke moves directly and naturally from the miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fishes, which pointed to Jesus' Messiahship, to Peter's confession of that Messiahship. From there, Luke moves directly to the transfiguration narrative through the natural transition that we'll get into in verse 28. Now theologically, this is the most important statement that Luke has written thus far. It is a disciple refers to Jesus as Messiah. Immediately after Peter's great declaration, Jesus is going to predict his rejection, death, and resurrection that we will see in the upcoming verse 22. And this will shed light on the implications of his Messiahship. And also keep in mind that about 18 months has elapsed between verse 17 and verse 18. 18. Now, with verse 18, immediately following this practice feeding, we have Peter's great confession of Christ here at Caesarea Philippi. Did the miracle of the loaves and the fishes open the eyes of the disciples to see the glory of the Lord Jesus as God's anointed one? But regarding this episode, Luke omits a reference to Caesarea Philippi, and inserts a reference to Jesus at prayer. Now Luke apparently disconnects Peter's confession from time and space in order to emphasize the line between the miraculous feeding and Jesus' friendship with God as exemplified in his prayer. This is one of the insights Luke gives us into Jesus' prayer life. And take notice that even though Christ had much public work to do, Christ found time to be alone in private, to be alone in conversation with himself and with his Father, and also to have time with his disciples. When Christ was alone, he was praying. And this is a wonderful example show that it's good for us to improve food for devotion. When we are alone, we may not be alone, but we have the Father with us. Now, when Christ was alone praying, his disciples were with him. 
And at times they might have joined him in his prayers. And so that would have been a family prayer. But Christ prayed with them before he questioned them, that they might be directed and encouraged to answer him by his prayers for him or for them. Those we give instructions to up prayers for and with. And this incident at Caesarea Philippi is commonly acknowledged to be the watershed of the Savior's teaching ministry with the Twelve. Up to this point, he has been patiently leading them to an appreciation of who he is and what he could do in and through them. Now he's reached that goal, and so henceforth he moves on determinately to the cross. So Jesus prays alone. Reported that Jesus ever prayed, we do know from Scripture that he prayed for them. He prayed in their presence, and he taught them to pray. But his own prayer life was separate from theirs. And following one of his seasons of prayer, he questions the disciples as to who the crowds said that he was. And leading us into verse 19, Jesus asks for the opinion of the crowds as to who he is. And the response echoes the rumors that we expressed back in verses 7 and 8. A difference of opinions. We had some say that he was John the Baptist. We had others say that he was Elijah. And still others said one of the Old Testament prophets in resurrection. But when Jesus asked the disciples, Peter confidently confessed Jesus as the Christ or as the Messiah of God. Now, Christ knew better than they did, of course, but he wanted to make his disciples aware of the mistakes of others concerning Jesus. They were being led into the knowledge of Christ and truth concerning Christ. And we should take notice of the ignorance and the errors of others that we may be more thankful to Christ, who has manifested himself to us, and not into the world. And this allows us to pity those, which should lead us to want to help them and to teach them. Now in verse 20, Peter called Jesus the Christ. The additional words of God in this verse emphasize Jesus's commission. Now, Christ began with the impersonal question of, who do men say that I am? Now, this wasn't a difficult question to answer, since on every side of the issue, men were saying different things about Jesus. They were reciting what they heard. There were many different answers, and all kinds of rumors, and all kinds of opinions, because Jesus was on the mind and the tongue of every man. And men weren't only saying things about Jesus, but also saying great things about Jesus. And of course, some thought he was John the Baptist back from the dead. And others said that this reminded them of Elijah. Others spoke of maybe Jeremiah or another of the prophets. In other words, while current opinions were by no means unanimous to Jesus's identity, they were unanimous that he was someone great. His place was among heroes of the time. But Christ wasn't content with that recognition. People were saying that he was John, Elijah, and Jeremiah, but that meant that he was one in a series. 
it meant that there were unprecedented and parallels, even if he stood first, or even if he stood first in rank, he was still only an equal, first among equals. But quite certainly, that is not what the Christ of the New Testament claimed or is. Now, men may agree with Christ's claim, or they may dissent from it, but as to the fact of the claim itself, there is not a shadow of a doubt. Christ claimed to be something and someone unprecedented, unparalleled, unrivaled, course, unique. Two more verses here. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. In verse 21, it reads, And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Following Peter's historic confession, here in verse 21, the Lord commanded them not to tell others. Nothing must interrupt his pathway to the cross. Then the Savior unveiled his own immediate future. He must suffer, must be rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, must be killed, and must be raised the third day. This was an outstanding announcement. And let us not forget that these words were spoken by the only sinless, righteous man who ever lived on this earth. They were spoken by the true Messiah of Israel. They were the words of God manifested in the flesh. They tell us the life of fulfillment, the perfect life, the life of obedience to the Lord, involves suffering. It involves rejection, death in one form or another, and a resurrection to life that is deathless. It is a life poured out for others. Now, this, of course, was the very opposite of the popular conception of the Messiah's role. Men were looking for a saber-rattling, enemy-destroying leader. So it must have been a shock to the disciples. But if, as they confessed, Jesus was indeed the Christ of God, then they had no reason for disillusionment or discouragement. If he is the anointed of God, then his cause can never fail. No matter them, they were on the winning side. Victory and vindication were inevitable. So the command not to tell others probably stems from two circumstances. The Jewish people chafing under the domination of Rome, they were all too ready to join a messianic revolution. And there was apparently an understanding that one should not claim messiahship for himself, but should first do the works of the Messiah and then be acclaimed as such by others. Scripture had to be filled, be fulfilled, because the works, those had to be first before anything else. And with that, I am going to stop there. Next time we'll get into the suffering and the glory of the Son of Man, the invitation to take up the cross. And then also, of course, we're going to get into the transfiguration of Jesus. So until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.